everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 73 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about blazing saddles on your We Don't Need No Stinking Badges podcast. I'm Andy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. Today, we're joined by Caitlin, who is host of the excellent podcast, So You Want to Be Tolkien and a Command of Her Own. You can probably imagine how jealous I am of someone who gets to talk about both Tolkien and Star Trek on a weekly basis. It's excellent that she can join us today. So thank you, Caitlin, and welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. I, I'm very excited to not be yelling into the void while listening to your podcast this week. <laughs> oh, so that means you get to yell at us. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> So Blazing Saddles, this was on, you You had a fairly short list of films like, oh, these are ones I want to talk about. Why was this one that you wanted to pick up? Um, mostly because I hadn't seen it. Like I watched it a lot as a young person uh, when I was a kid and then kind of again when I was like 19, 20. And I hadn't really seen it or any Mel Brooks films since then. Okay. So I really just wanted to see what it was still like. Okay. And um or what it was like, you know, over a decade later. Mm. And see what you guys thought about it too. Okay. Uh, I think yeah. we will find out in a bit. Um it's a film I came to fairly late, at least in my twenties, if not my thirties. Um but one I certainly enjoyed when I did watch it, because I like Mel Brooks, so hey. Mm-hmm. Uh Mandy, how come you've never seen this one? Because it was made in nineteen seventy four. Ugh. Surprising yes. it's not in black and white, right? <laughs> yes! Oh my god, it's so old. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's why. We we all know there's a black hole in, in my movie history. If it was like before 1985, there's no way I've seen it unless we've done it for the show at this point. So okay. it was just too old for me to ever care about. And then probably I thought it was just some kind of like weird Western spoof and Westerns are not my thing okay at all yeah have we this is the first western we've done i think yes yes it is cool 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 cool. and the first mel brooks that's yes, sort of weird yes, it is. since it's a parody of a western mm. well it is but i wouldn't have really known that no i i mean it's weird that it's the first western you're doing since i, I just think it's weird to do a parody without doing an actual one ah mm. <sighs> well I don't like westerns, so that's fair. <laughs> we that's might fair. not ever do a real western on this show. <laughs> They're not my cup of tea either. Yeah, th- yeah, there's not a huge number of them on the uh, on the list. So, if if there were any yeah. more than this, the- they're the movies that I'm always subjected to when I go to my grandma's house. Okay, and I have been since I was a child, and it's torture, and I don't want to willingly put myself in that position. I think. Interesting. I have a different type of grandma than you do. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Blazing Saddles, for anyone who's not aware, is a 1974 comedy western directed by Mel Brooks. It was written by a number of people, which included Mel Brooks himself and Richard Pryor. Pryor was Brooks's first choice to be Sheriff Bart, but the studio refused. They cited his unreliability and difficulties with insurance based on his previous arrests for drug use. Cleveland Little was the eventual choice for the role. The casting of The Waco Kid was also difficult. John Wayne passed, saying that it was not right for his family-friendly image, but he was excited to see the film when it came out. Gig Young was cast, but passed out on his first day of filming due to alcohol withdrawal. Gene Wilder was then given the role at that point. 
The film was a critical and commercial success. Roger Ebert gave the film a rare four stars out of four, and it made almost $120 million on a $2.6 million budget. It was the highest grossing film of that year, beating out The Towering Inferno, and it still stands fourth on the all-time highest grossing R-rated films when adjusted for inflation. It was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actress for Madeleine Kahn, Best Film Editing, and Best Music Original Song. It was also selected for preservation in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant in 2006. And if you actually haven't seen it, if you're like me and you haven't seen it, it is a Mel Brooks movie, so it is a parody, but it is a Western, so... In order to ruin a western town, a corrupt politician appoints a black sheriff who promptly becomes his most formidable adversary. So says IMDb. (laughs) Was there anything better you could come up with yourself? Do you think that matches it? I think at its simplest level, that is pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of stuff kind of going on in this movie, but that... You know, yeah, corrupt politician specifically appoints a black sheriff trying to ruin the town. So, yeah, that's what happened. Okay. Caitlin, how were you able to watch this one? I rented it off the PlayStation Store, which is how I rent most of my movies these days. Okay. And it was more expensive than renting it when we used to go down to Blockbuster in the early 2000s and rent it. And I didn't like that, actually. (laughs) I feel like things should get cheaper as they get older. Especially when you don't physically have a copy like you did yeah. with Blockbuster. It wasn't a physical tape that they would have to replace if you lost. Hmm. It just makes yeah. sense. I, I guess I didn't have to rewind this one, so that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Mandy, where did you find it? Oh, Amazon. It's not available in any of the subscription streaming services here, so you have to rent it. Hmm. How about you? Yeah, same. I couldn't find it anywhere, which is fine because I actually have the Mel Brooks Blu-ray collection, which is most excellent. Of course you do. Mm. Okay. Mandy, this is the first Mel Brooks film we're doing, but what's your experience of Brooks himself, uh, his other films, and then Gene Wilder and the uh, wider ensemble? For Mel Brooks, I have seen Spacewells and the producers. But I feel like I need to clarify that I saw Spaceballs before I ever saw Star Wars. And so I know I didn't appropriately appreciate it. Hmm. And I should probably fix that. Um, Gene Wilder, he's Willy Wonka. And this character was Cowboy Willy Wonka. (laughs) Yeah? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, We saw Madeline Kahn in Clue. That's the only other thing I've ever seen her in. Um, the rest of the cast I am completely unfamiliar with, except I've heard the name Slum Pickens. Okay. That's it. It's from 1974. Why do I know any of these people? <laughs> I was trying to figure out where I'd seen Madeline Kahn before. <laughs> so thank you for including that she was in Clue, because that was bothering me. <laughs> there are flames on the side of my face. Breathing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That does seem to be the thing people remember from Clue. Amongst all of it, that's the thing people reference. Yeah, I wouldn't have recognized her if her name hadn't been on the screen. Mm. Um, Finally, after I had seen her face long enough, like after her full performance, when, when she came back on screen, I was like, okay, I recognize the facial features now. I can like see 
the clue character here, but I would never have known that it was her if I didn't know the name up front yeah. because she just looked so different. The voice, the accent, the hair. I mean, she completely embodied a whole different character. Mm. I, I struggled to come up with similar material other than what's your experience of Mel Brooks films and uh, Westerns, which I think we've kind of answered. Would you consider Monty Python to be similar material to this? Well, I I didn't until you said it when you first watched it. And, and then when I watched it again with that in mind, yes, I can absolutely see it because there are so many um, anachronisms, but used in such a way of never waste a shot to put a gag in there mm -hmm. somewhere. Is there a way of in this line of dialogue or in what they're doing on screen, a way of making a joke, do that thing. So it ends up with a very broad spectrum of comedy, some very surreal stuff. Yeah, I can actually kind of see it. And it, it definitely does have a, a hint of that absurdity that Monty Python has, especially when you get towards the end. For similar material, I would think of something more like Airplane or uh, the movies by the people who did Airplane. The Zucker, I think it is. <laughs> mm. And yeah, Leslie Nielsen stuff. And... Yeah, mm. I guess... I, I feel like when we were, or when me and my friends were young, like renting Airplane or renting Blazing Saddles or a Mel Brooks film, like that was the same type of night we would have then. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and I think w we've done one other parody on the show. We did Galaxy Quest mm -hmm. um, uh, several weeks back, and we talked about Spaceballs as being comparable, which is a Mel Brooks parody. And so I think, and we also talked about Airplane being similar. Yeah. Um, so I didn't I didn't consider that when I was watching this because I think for me I didn't look at it as straight parody of westerns because it had so much kind of political commentary going on too that it felt a little bit deeper to me than just flat parody and I think that's why I was really having a harder time coming up with what would be similar. Right. Yeah, I can absolutely see them as comparisons. I think in my head, because they're uh, parodying a film, like something very specific, whereas this is just doing the genre writ large. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can see that. It's certainly a similar sort of comedy at times. Okay. Mandy, did you enjoy Blazing Saddles? Shockingly enough, I did. Ah. Having compared it to Monty Python. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they're so different, unless it's just... I understand the references that are being parodied more because it is American cultural references versus mm -hmm. British cultural references. I, I don't know if that's the difference, but the, I mean, I didn't love it. I don't know that I'm going to say, oh, hey, we should watch Blazing Saddles next week. Uh, but I laughed and, and I enjoyed the experience. <laughs> Fast forward to the farting scene. Just get there straight away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear Lord. <laughs> Because that's, that's it. That's the pinnacle of the humor, surely. I'm really happy that a movie with that scene is nominated for Academy Awards. Mm. Well, I mean, that scene was groundbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, quite literally, it was the first movie to have audible farting. Like, I don't even know why we know that. <laughs> but apparently it was important. It's like one full minute straight of it, too. Yep. And I read that they made the farting noises using soap and armpits. Just in case you needed to know that. 
Is it actually that this film was a bunch of friends hanging out in the desert being daft? <laughs> is, that what, is that what we were basically watching for two hours? Um, Maybe a little. Hmm. Just a little, though. Okay, so there's a couple of different sides of the film. Obviously, it is a, a very strong comedy, and it does a lot of things that we can go into, and it's also uh, using what can be a sensitive subject. Did Did you have any reaction to it? Honestly, I was a little bit uncomfortable watching it okay. because of how pervasive the use of that word is in this movie. And it was just kind of uncomfortable to watch all these white people saying it and white people saying it to the face of black men. It made me uncomfortable to watch. But then I found this quote from Richard Pryor that... I really appreciated it and it made me kind of understand what they were trying to do with the movie a little bit more. Richard Pryor actually urged Brooks not to hold back on using it and to use it more. He said, uh, Mel Brooks said, when I thought it was getting to be too much, Richard said, no, we are writing a story of racial, of racial prejudice. That's the word, the only word. It's profound, it's real, and the more we use it from the rednecks, the more the victory of the black sheriff will resonate. And hearing that made me kind of understand what they were trying to say and why they were doing what they were doing. Yeah, it's not necessarily uh, authority to use it in general, but in this sense because of what it's depicting. Um, right. And, and in some ways, the, what the, the, the message of it, the core is, hey, racism's stupid. So look at all these stupid people who are in their own way very, very stupid and they're racist. So it's ridiculous, mm -hmm. which is uh, pretty positive message i think it doesn't go any deeper than that i no, i agree absolutely so i guess when i was watching it i remembered all the black racist racistness that mm. happened but i forgot uh all the racism uh at other people and mm. so that was what when i was watching i, I was just like whoa because they use a an asian racial slur mm -hmm. and then there's mm -hmm. the scene with the indigenous people where mel brooks plays an indigenous person yeah and i was a little bit like uh that's that's a bit that's a bit too much there that's a bit too much there sir but i i do get what they're doing with the theme and it does it does play i think yeah so certainly for that casting you wouldn't do that now um like we saw with uh for the love of spock when you know leonard nimoy himself played a Native American in the show. And that was just the, the the roles and the way it was done at the time. Now, at least, you'd hope it's different. Yeah, I think for 1974, this was rather progressive. Um, but we look at it now and we think, oh, the message was progressive, but the way they did it was definitely inappropriate. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But I, th I think the underlying message of, you know, trying to point a spotlight on racism and racial prejudice, I think that is a message that has rung true. I mean, it still holds true. It's still relevant today. Decades later, mm. it's still an important message. And this is a movie that is, apart from the problematic kind of execution of some of the things, like you said, Mel Brooks playing an indigenous person and things like that, um, it definitely, it still holds up, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think I definitely agree. And on top of that, mm. It's really funny. I, I do think the actors, um, Gene Wilder and Cleavon Little, mm. I think they bring a lot of charm to their characters. Mm -hmm. mm. Absolutely. 
carry a lot of a lot of the heavier stuff through with with the way that they they do the comedy around the heavier stuff. Yeah, I think those two carried the movie completely. Yeah. Because they had some pretty amazing chemistry between the two of them. Even I mean from the very beginning, the first lines they spoke to each other. Are we awake? We are not sure. Are we black? Yes, we are. Then we're awake. But we're very puzzled. <laughs> you know, and that that whole um that was the the first interaction they had with each other and right then I knew that it's going to be fun watching these two together. Yeah, cuz yeah. they they're doing absolutely the inverse of we don't care what you look like or who you are and we'll be accepting to Mongo and other people. Let's just get on and have fun and they are enjoyable for that thing. Mm-hmm. Man, I loved Mongo. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really get Mongo. I mean, he just has that one great scene, really. His entrance to town. Yeah, when he rides into yeah. town on a cow and then punches a horse. <laughs> and that's that's all you need, really. Mm. You know, something I find very interesting about how they used horses in this film is that the horse that Mongo punched was a real horse. Like, I don't think he actually punched him, but the horse was trained to fall down. Mm. And but then in in the final fight scene, it was so clear that all of the horses were fake. I mean, they were clearly fake when they were shooting the horses and like flipping them over and things like that. And that's just interesting to me. It makes me wonder why the decision was made to use a real horse in one situation and clearly use fake horses in another. Yeah, he flips basically a paper mache horse. <laughs> like it's it's mm-hmm. completely stuck. Yes. <laughs> like there's no movement in any of those joints. It just goes ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph and I were cracking up like that's not real. <laughs> but yeah, so apparently Peter got upset about this movie a little bit or PETA's equivalent in 1974, which probably still PETA, because he punched a horse uh, that was trained to fall down. I uh, uh, see. I think that just makes it better. <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm the one full of the useless trivia about this movie today. I mean, any movie that can upset PETA, yes, please. Mm. <laughs> I, I, as a comedy, I always feel like it shouldn't work at times. Like, you know, there is a giant farting scene in the middle of this film. And as with a number of other large, silly comedies, it devolves into a big fight that does some weird, ridiculous stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think it kind of salvages it, particularly at the end, because we have the big fight and we have it effectively breaking the fourth wall and, and spilling out onto the Hollywood streets. But then it goes back into the film and you actually have a conclusion between... Hedley Lamar and uh, the sheriff, and they then get to go off into the sunset. So I quite like that it's kind of trying to have its cake and eat it. D- does it work for you guys? Did any of it stand out or like just throw you out of the film? It worked for me in a way that the ending of Monty Python and the Holy Grail did not work for me. Mm. Do you remember when when we watched Monty Python and I was mad? Like I was just flat out angry at the way they ended it when they pulled you out of the setting of the movie and you saw the movie set. Yeah. Like I was infuriated that that happened. I don't know why, but I was. And then when this happened, 
because essentially it's the same thing. I liked it. I was like, oh my God, this is so meta. And I enjoyed it. And I don't know why. I don't know what's different about it. Um, but having the movie happen inside the movie and then spill into the movie sets on, like, I guess it's Universal Studios. I'm not sure. And then into the Chinese theater and then back into the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a roller coaster ride. And I really, really enjoyed it. I think maybe I'm fickle. (laughs) I do think this movie set it up better because it had, um, I want to say anachronisms, but I don't know if that's the word. Um, No, it definitely did. Uh, Like referencing Jesse Owens. Yeah. And like some of the the villains being the the KKK and Nazis. Yeah. So it had more... like Holy Grail almost plays it straight until the end, almost. Yeah. Um, this one doesn't at all. So I, I like breaking that fourth wall at the end. I'm not a fan of parodies when they do that, um, or parodies that don't have proper endings, which a lot of them don't. But this one, they do make it work a lot better, mm-hmm. and they bring it back into the movie at the end, which is. Which I like. I really liked, though, that when we were back in the movie, Gene Wilder was still holding the movie popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> it cracked me up. Like, it wasn't... I, I don't know how their brains came up with this, but it it worked in a way that I'm surprised that it worked. Like, I feel like it shouldn't have. Like, even as far as interrupting the, the French mistake dance scene, like, none of that should have worked, but I thought it was hilarious. Oh. I thought it was funny. <laughs> I think, like like Caitlin says, the fact that they set it up is probably the really good aspect of it, that you, you actually spend a bit of time in that world before they then introduce the Western as well. Mm-hmm. I wish that I had thought to write down all of those anachronisms in my thought stock while I was paying attention, because I caught some of them. Like, I know I made a notice of the Jesse Owens one, and... Um, I don't think I wrote down the Nazis, but I did, I did write down when Hedley Lamar was telling the, the criminals to go do their thing. He said, you go do that voodoo that you do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that a reference? <laughs> that is a reference. Okay. I've heard it before. It's from something. Unless the thing I've heard it from came after and it was referencing this, which is also possible. It sounds, does it not sound like a line from Labyrinth? That's what I well, thought. Didn't Labyrinth yeah, come later? Yeah, yeah, you remind me of the babe. Oh, come on. The babe with the power? What power? Power of voodoo? Yes. Voodoo, you do. Do what? Remind yes. me of the babe. What babe? Babe with the power. Babe. <sighs> okay. I'm glad we could be there for you in your moment of need, Matthew. Apparently, it originated in a Cole Porter song in 1929. Well, that certainly came before okay. this. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It did. And then... Um, it didn't become common until they used it in uh blaze I think Blazing Saddles is the one that started started it. Right. So maybe the labyrinth got it from Blazing Saddles. And that's Let's certainly the, that. the stinking badges line is from I think also a twenties movie, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And this was the mm-hmm. film that then popularized using it in other cultures and, and it's a film it's a line that I've seen referenced a lot 
again, I think mm-hmm. more because it's in this than, than its origin. That's interesting because I didn't know it was in this. I've, I've heard it over and over my whole life. And then I saw the clip from the original movie at some point and was like, oh, okay, it's, it's from some movie. It's not the kind of movie I would have expected it to be in. And then while I was watching this and I... I like it clicked in my head right before they said it, and I was like, I know exactly what he's gonna say, and I said it along with him. It's like <laughs> that's kind of meta too. <laughs> I think this whole movie was just kind of a meta experience for me. Hmm. The the one I don't think I'd noticed before, but I saw this time was the the giant gang they put together, like you say, the Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, the Mexicans. They also have a Hell's Angels guy who has handlebars on his uh, horse and sunglasses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I I saw that and I was like, I'm not sure what that's supposed to be. That looks like motorcycle handlebars on a horse. And then I got really confused. And then I was like, well, I guess he's just supposed to be a general bad guy. <laughs> and he just kind of fits. Yeah. it was. Mel Brooks has a strange mind. That's all I can say. Mm. Yeah. So we're kind of gushing on this. Which is the hard thing when you talk about a comedy. It's very easy to go, oh, let's let's share the best bits. Because there are some really good bits in this. Uh, are there other elements of discussion? Are there things that we picked up on that we think we'd want to dissect? Or is it now, hey, what was really good? Can I tell you the bit of the movie that I think didn't need to be there and was my least favorite part? Okay. And I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this. But I think that Madeline Kahn didn't need to be in this movie at all. Agreed. In... Uh, just to clarify, is that you think it should be taken out or that it could be taken out? Both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't enjoy her performance. It was weird. It was kind of funny, but it was just weird. And I was too distracted focusing on the weirdness of it to really enjoy the humor. And then the story that her character is telling, like the reason her character is there never plays out. Like, she doesn't affect anything at all. All that happens is that instead of her, like, abandoning Bart the way Headley wants her to, she becomes infatuated with him and he abandons her. And then we don't really see her again. So why was that 20 minutes there? I don't know. Was it just to have the, like, Wiener Schnitzel joke? I mean, there are a lot of good German puns in here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's worth it for them, if I'm honest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Mel Brooks films do not treat women well at the best of times. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. more often than not, he's the person in charge and he has a uh, busty lady looking after him. I was just going to say, I don't know anything about Mel Brooks as a human person. So I honestly don't know if he's like trying to say something about women in these films or if he is just using this excuse to be a hornball. Well, given the character that he played, he's definitely <laughs> using it as an excuse to be a hornball. I, well, Mel Brooks himself, though I meant, like I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about him or if he treats women well outside of his movies. But there is two women in this film, basically, and they're mostly undressed for most of it. Yeah. Mm. See, I think they could have improved this movie and the scenes with God, what is her name, Lily. Von Stupp. Lily Von Stupp. Is that her name? <laughs> Let's do it for Lily Von Stupp. If they had actually followed through and completely subverted her character so that she somehow helped Bart win mm. against Henley Lamar, 
if that had happened, I would have been completely fine with it. I still probably would have thought it was weird, but it would have served a purpose other than, oh, hey, let's watch this beautiful woman in lingerie talk about being powerful over men in a way where she's really not because she's a woman in lingerie who's supposed to have sex with all these men. Yes, I think I expected it to get to a point of her actually helping them and getting on the team, as it were. She um, was there at the end. Yeah. In a in a actually at the end she had a very cute outfit on with the suit and stuff. She looked she looked good. <laughs> but I th- I, oh, I don't even remember. I think yeah, when we get to that final sequence, she doesn't do anything to help them, but she is not on the the side of evil as to her. And it's hard. I think I agree with you, but also Madeleine Kahn is one of my favorite things from this film. So mm-hmm. not in that way. I was just going to say, is that because she's in lingerie? No. The school teacher, that's what does it for me. Um, Ah. (laughs) Because, yeah, it it is that very sort of 70s thing of the women are either, I don't know a good way to describe the school teacher, but whatever the school teacher is, or they are busty and mostly undressed. You're either someone we want or someone we don't want and don't care about. And this film doesn't go any further than that. But yeah, she gets some good comedy and some good stuff to do. Okay, we can disagree. <laughs> I think I would have been more okay with her if there wasn't also that, I, like, I don't even think she has a name, that mostly undressed lady hanging around Mel Brooks. Yeah, secretary. The secretary. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair too, I think. So, I mean, she was literally there just to be eye candy. Yeah. Mm. And so that Mel Brooks could talk to her chest. Yep. Sadly, it's it's a thing he does in some of his other films as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like I've never heard him called out as a you know terrible person. But if you write that thing constantly, it does make you wonder. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, besides the treatment of women by Mel Brooks in this movie, is there anything else that we kind of want to talk about and not gush about? Were there any other problematic moments that we really want to to speak about? I mean, I think we've covered several of them already yeah i think there is problematic stuff but the film succeeds in trying for something larger and better than others so uh, i can give it something of a pass i think and and enjoy it for Mm -hmm. the comedy and for uh, what it's doing in pointing out the ridiculousness of racist people yes absolutely well then let's move into our favorite moments Caitlin, do you want to go first and tell us what moments you like the best out of this movie? I did already mention my favorite when he when Mongo rides into town on a cow and punches a horse. Um, yes. I don't know why, but I laugh at that every time. And I did also enjoy when Gene Wilder and Cleavon Little, when they first meet and Gene Wilder's going over his sort of backstory man drink like that and he don't eat he is going to die and then Gene Wilder just says when (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that was great and their whole conversation there is is fabulous it is every scene they had together was just spot on Mm. because because it really feels like they are very affectionate towards each other right from that that start Mm -hmm. And the same type of feel uh, later on when Gene Wilder's trying to convince him to not expect much from the townspeople. 
And it almost kind of sounds like he's going to excuse their racism, but then he's just like, Morons. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, what about you, Matthew? I think, besides all of the German puns. Oh, well, that's the list gone. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that the, the sequence between them. One of my favourite moments in comedy is uh, Gene Wilder talking about the effect of drink and the effect of having been shot and so on. And he shows him his hand and he says, look at this, steady as a rock. Yeah, but I shoot with this hand and his hand's just shaking everywhere. And you can almost see it coming, but they deliver it so quickly that the joke has landed before you're there. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Has me rolling around every time. (laughs) But yeah, the the sequence with Madeleine Kahn, it's just, it's filled. And perhaps it's filled because it serves no real purpose. Like the scene is very obvious where we're going to end up with. So let's just make it as funny as possible. Um, they they knock at the door and she sits there with her. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. Now, Mandy, you've not seen Cabaret, but that's basically the opening of Cabaret. Oh, okay, yeah, no, I that went right over my head. So it's it's funny, and she delivers it, and it's great. But then she does it again later, so they take it away from being a joke. And no, this is a, a character trait, and this is how she greets people. Mm-hmm. Particularly because she does, Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome, come in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and referencing uh. Clue with her, I actually went and watched the, the bit with the, the flames on the side of my face sequence. And mm-hmm. Tim Curry's line leading up to that is, You were jealous that your husband was stopping her back. And I want to believe oh. that was a line, reference. <laughs> oh, it had to be. That's funny. Yeah. I like it. Going further, just through the scene, it just every moment is so good. The, the way she says, Won't you excuse me for a moment while I slip into something a little bit more comfortable? And she enunciates every <laughs> single letter in that word and then comes out in this ridiculous sort of diving swimsuit thing. <laughs> what else, Matthew? Keep well, on coming. You, so you remember uh, when we talked about parenthood and I talked about sort of family things that you take from a film and they become a quote to each other all the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the end of the sequence is, is her line. Is it uh, true what they say about the way you people are gifted? Oh, it's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. Now, <laughs> like I say, I came to this fairly late. Like, I, I think possibly even in my 30s, sometime around 2011. And I have grown up my entire life with my mum and dad. When some, someone, someone says something is true, one of my parents going, it's to woo. And this just being a silly <laughs> thing my parents did. <laughs> and then you, you, didn't know. you suddenly find out it's from a slightly saucy joke in a film. <laughs> Oh, that is hysterical. Oh, my God. I love it. Wait, did you do it too? Yeah. Like, did you pick it up from them and so you would just walk around saying, it's It's (laughs) woo. It's just a family thing. Oh, my God. That's amazing. (laughs) That is funny. Matthew, I love your family. (laughs) You have the best stories about your family. It's great. I asked my dad about it and he said they, they probably saw it at the cinema and just decided they liked it and started doing it like you do (laughs) that's fantastic 
Okay, so I'm going to stop going on about Madeleine Kahn. Because I should. Um, Mandy, what did you particularly like from this film? Um, well, I, I picked out two specific lines that really, really cracked me up. And I don't know why, but they did. Um, the first was when the, the school teacher woman, um, the only woman, by the way, who was actually covered by clothes mm. in the whole movie, um, was reading the letter that, that she wrote to the governor um, because they were complaining about the sheriff that he had appointed. And she called, she said, You are the leading asshole in the state. <laughs> and it was kind of unexpected. And it just the, her delivery was fantastic on it. And it just kind of made me pause for a second. And then I burst out laughing. So that one stuck with me. And then uh, when Bart asks Gene Wilder what his name is, he just kind of sits there for a second and he goes, Well, my name is Jim, but most people call me Jim. <laughs> and that is not where you expected that sentence to go at all. And so it kind of caught me off guard and Gene Wilder's delivery was amazing. Gene Wilder's delivery in the whole movie was amazing. It, it, it is weird. I still think of him as Cowboy Willy Wonka because he has that like that cadence, that slow, soft cadence that he had with Willy Wonka. Um, I actually went and looked up, did he do this before or after Willy Wonka? And it was after, mm. um, which did surprise me a little bit. But uh, yeah, just, I like listening to him talk and that did not change in this movie. I also enjoyed that line, especially since when he says that second gym, he almost sounds surprised. Like, yes. <laughs> my name is Jim. People call me Jim. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Throughout their conversation, there's a lot of um, call and repeat type stuff with the, the whole, you know, if you insist, I, I insist, I insist. Or if you must, I must, I must. And they do the same sort of lines back and forth with each other. Just instantly, mm -hmm. they're so comfortable and so friendly. It's great. Mm -hmm. It is great. Like, I want friends like Bart and Jen were. <laughs> honestly, it was, it was it was good. I liked it. Okay, well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about Blazing Saddles? So this was our first Mel Brooks film, uh, and one of one of your first. Do you want to try any more? Are there any particular ones on the list that you want to pick out? Honestly, I, I think Spaceballs could qualify as one we do for the show since I watched it out of context. Don't remember most of it. Um, all I remember is Rick Moranis in a giant helmet. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. And is it John Candy with a little dog nose? Yeah. Yeah. That's really all I got. Um, and, and so I think it would not be inappropriate to do it on the show. Okay. Um, other Mel Brooks films, I don't know what they are. What are they? I think you guys should do like a double episode where you do Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and then do Men in Tights. Oh, Lord. <laughs> that sounds painful. Do we have to. <laughs> it would be hilarious. So wait, Robin Hood, Men, for in, me. Men in Tights is Mel Brooks? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I guess that's just something I always knew and never actually looked up, but I'm pretty sure it is because yes, he yes, it plays is. the yeah. the dude at the end. Yeah, yeah. And it's um, Kerry Owes from uh, Princess Bride. Yeah, 
as Robin Hood. That I did know. And and that does mean we could potentially do a twofer of like a proper Frankenstein and then young Frankenstein. Yeah. Mm. So I knew that was one because I read that Gene Wilder took the role after he was given, you know, after he was like the third or fourth choice mm. for playing the Waco kid. He took the role by pitching young Frankenstein and telling Mel Brooks, I will do it if you will also do this other okay. movie. And that's how young Frankenstein got mm. made. So, maybe? Okay. okay, so we're not taking them off. This, this hasn't put you off, at least. No. Okay. Um, I mean, like I said, it, it's not my favorite movie, this this one. I'm not going to run out and say, hey, we should watch Blazing Saddles all the time. But I I did enjoy it. And I suspect that I may enjoy some of the humor of other Mel Brooks films in a way that I probably wouldn't have 10 years ago. Okay. And then, so to follow up, Caitlin, do you have any recommendations for Mandy's list of films to watch? I do. Okay, and, and this was very difficult for me because I had like 15, but I've narrowed it down. <laughs> okay. Um, so my first recommendation is actually a Canadian movie that I'd be mostly interested in seeing what people who aren't Canadian think of it, because I don't, I don't know anybody who's not Canadian who's ever seen it. Uh, it's called One Week, and it stars Joshua Jackson of the Mighty Ducks fame. And You mean of Dawson's Creek fame. <laughs> Some people might also say that Fringe was good. But whatever. Yes. (laughs) And he plays a teacher who finds out that he has, I don't know, all of the cancer and is basically going to die. And he quits his job and gets a motorcycle and rides across Canada in it. And it's sort of about him learning about, you know, life and death and that sort of thing, coming to terms with what's going to happen. But it's mostly just like a movie that's a big love letter to Canada and I love it a lot okay I I will tell you I am always down to watch anything that's starring Joshua Jackson I had a feeling you might be yeah yeah I I think let's put that one on the list Matthew okay it it is really just like an hour and a half of him too I I am I'm okay with that yeah Yeah. let's do that Next, next time we take a trip to Canada we'll watch that and then go yeah. <laughs> so then also I would recommend it's a TV show, but it's only 13 episodes because it was canceled. But because they filmed the entire first season before being canceled, it it's a full and complete story. It's called Wonderfalls. If you haven't seen it. I have heard of it. I have not seen it. It's an early Brian Fuller show. So it's got, like, Caroline DeVernis in it, who was then later in Hannibal. And it's got Lee Pace in it, who was then in Pushing Daisies. Ooh. Yeah. And it's okay. about the main character starts hearing, well, no, uh, inanimate objects with faces start talking to her and giving her instructions. Oh. And she finds that if she follows the instructions, good things happen. And if she doesn't, bad things happen. And That, that sounds delightful. It's hilarious. Um, it, it's, it's hilarious. I, I okay. highly recommend it. And like, I think Tim Minear was an executive producer on it and it's what he did right after Firefly. So oh, Jewel State okay. is in it and that sort of thing. I don't know. I really enjoyed it and mm. it's, it's just hilarious if you haven't seen it. You know, that might be a good way to get some TV back into a PCD because we've been talking about how to do it because it's, it's very time consuming mm-hmm. to do mm. A show like pop pop culture like like Parks and Rec, where there's seven seasons of 
you know, 20 plus episodes every season. But if we have TV shows that are, because unfortunately were canceled, but they are a contained story, that that could be something we can think about yeah. doing. I was very thankful that it did not do that thing where they end on a cliffhanger after being canceled. Oh, good. Mm. But okay. no, it's, it sort of has a really nice ending. And then my third and final recommendation is a Studio Ghibli film called Whisper of the Heart, which is kind of like a, it's not a Miyazaki film. It's one of the other people. Mm. And it's sort of a teenage drama. But it's about these two teenagers who sort of meet through library books and how they inspire one another to follow their dreams. Okay. And I really I have never like heard it. of it. I like it a lot. I do recommend watching it in Japanese because the main character translates songs from English to Japanese, and that just doesn't play well in the English. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That sounds interesting. It's really good. Okay. I think we do have a few other, at least one other Studio Ghibli movie to do. I, I think we've got at least three on the list already. Like oh, basically, these okay. are they are just solid. We should <laughs> just go all and watch really them really good. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you're not going to go wrong with a Studio Ghibli film. Mm. Okay, that sounds good. Well, if you would like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing. You can leave us a voice message at Speakpipe.com/slash Eloquent Gushing. And you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Kaylin, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. It's been really good having you on. Thank you for inviting me. I had fun. Uh, Where can people go and find your other podcasts? Uh, They can find my other podcasts at To Read Tolkien is my read-along Tolkien podcast on Twitter. And the Star Trek one is at Command of Her Own on Twitter. And I'm personally at Inferior Caitlin on Twitter. Caitlin is spelled the correct way with a C. (laughs) Shots fired at Caitlin with a K. (laughs) Yeah. There's no Ys either because those are ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. And then you're into retalking. Into retalking. You're most of the way through the Silmarillion now, I think. We are. Yeah. And if you've ever wondered what's in the Silmarillion, but have no desire to read it. That's sort of how we present this podcast. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah. And we're usually kind of tipsy when we record. So a lot of the times we just talk about attractive elves that should be making out. <laughs> okay. See, as much as you're saying that, for it, it's a book that is incredibly dense and you really do have to keep notes as you go through, but you make it incredibly accessible. So That's the point, because there's so many yeah. podcasts out there that do delve into the dense. Now I'm just talking about it. I'm sorry. But that's not what we wanted to do. Mm. You know, we wanted to just have some fun with it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's solid. Thank you. Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by our listeners through Patreon. Anything you give gives access to exclusive content like outtakes, behind the scenes moments and upcoming details on new shows. If you visit patreon.com slash eloquent gushing, you can find out more. And if you want to keep up to date with the latest news and announcements, go to our homepage, eloquentgushing.com, where you can sign up for the weekly newsletter, as well as find our other shows on the network. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. 
And I want rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, mugs, pugs, thugs, nitwits, halfwits, dimwits, vipers, snipers, con men, Indian agents, Mexican bandits, muggers, buggers, bushwhackers, hornswagglers, horse thieves, bull dykes, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and Methodists. I can't believe you did that whole thing. Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.